Please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Today we'll be looking at verses 7 through 12 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we continue our walk through 2 Corinthians, I hope that you have been deeply affected by the Apostle Paul's overwhelming sheer wonder at what God has done for him. In his New Testament letters, he often describes himself in various ways as the least of all believers. He knows that no one deserves the grace of God given in Christ, especially himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, for instance, he, wrote, he writes, For I am the least of the, of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. And in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he writes this, Of the gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In his work with the church in Corinth, Paul has had to deal with numerous people problems that could easily have driven him and his helpers to more or less give up on them. But quite the opposite has happened. These two letters of his to the Corinthian church have honestly dealt with these issues and problems, some of them even scandalous, but also have given us a very personal look at how Paul is kept from losing heart. What we don't see in this second letter is almost as important as what we do see. We don't see a new method or procedure invented to approach each grievous sin. We don't see doctrinal compromise to make it easier to live in that culture as a believer. And we don't see a return to the Pharisees' demands of keeping the law to achieve salvation. Instead, we do see a powerful demonstration of holding up and proclaiming what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and how to apply it to everyday life. Paul communicates this in different ways without changing the content of the gospel itself. And as we've already noted several times as we've progressed through this letter, Paul weaves teaching and doctrine into his personal explanations about his ministry and how his own heart is affected. In other words, he's giving his readers an honest 
an amazing picture of how his own deep, of his own deep concerns for them fit into what God has given him by the grace of the gospel to be and do. The Corinthians, and you and I, do not just read what he teaches and proclaims here. We also get to see how all of it goes together in Paul's own life and his own thinking. We don't just read that God's purpose for us in this world is to reflect the image of Christ into this world. We also get pictures of Paul's own life to bring that truth home. We read that he knows his ministry was given to him by God's mercy and grace, which then looks like what? Renouncing selfish motives and deceitfulness and tampering with God's word, as we learned last week. Instead, they hear the plain truth of the gospel and see that what is proclaimed is not about him, not about Paul, but about Jesus Christ as Lord. Today, we hear why God uses earthly vessels to put on display his glory, power, and grace and see an honest, forthright picture and explanation of the bigger purpose of it all and why it's hard. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Be reading from the English Standard Version. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to, the de to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, first in verse 7, we see this treasures of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. What's the treasure? The word, this treasure, refers back to verse 6, which says that God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So this treasure is the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. 
which he first shines in our hearts to bring about regeneration. So we can, we can and will know Christ. Paul's heart revels in the mercy and grace shown to him through the gospel. He lives in constant wonder, realizing that through this gospel, God Almighty, the, the creator of heaven and earth, has been revealed to him through or in Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, this is the reality now. He has been born again and knows not only forgiveness, not only justification, not only adoption, but also a growing relationship with this God through Christ. This understanding and overwhelming realization and revelation can make anyone arrogant and susceptible to feeling superior to everyone else. But if kept in the context of knowing that the work of the Holy Spirit is also to show us our utter sinfulness and unworthiness, we can then walk in faith and trust and humility, which is the only way we will ever reflect the glory of Christ in the world we live in. The timing of this passage that comes to our congregation absolutely amazes me. And it has been amazing me for a long time now. This truth that humility is the only way that will ever reflect the glory of Christ in the world we live in, we realize that that's why we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now think about that. Where do you put your treasure? Not in a jar of breakable clay. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but I hope you see the contrast here and what is important to note for each and every one of us. And what is this jar of clay? Jars of clay are ordinary vessels made of clay. They're unrefined and frail and breakable. The interesting th thing here is that it could be referring to two different kinds of earthen vessels. The first possible kind of earthen vessel was the ordinary clay pot. Isaiah 64 verse 8 sums up the much-used biblical analogy of the divine potter. But now, O Lord, you are the Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Paul knows all too well that pride is totally inappropriate to how humble this vessel is in which such a revelation and treasure is contained. So God's sovereignty is in view here. His ability to use what he's created to demonstrate his all-surpassing power. And the unimpressive frailty of the messengers of the gospel is also in view. Many in that day 
did put their treasures in these earthen vessels, hoping that thieves who might break into their homes wouldn't look in such a vessel for something that was worth so much. But there is a second kind of possible possibility here about what the earthen vessel was. And I was going to bring one to show you today on our shelf in our living room, and I completely forgot. But it was a little clay lamp that was so common in the Holy Land area, really all the way around the Mediterranean. We know that Jesus said to the Jews, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These little clay lamps, the one we have from Israel is about this big. Put oil in it, little wick, light it, little bitty light. But Jesus also said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, that you are the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He told his disciples, you are the light of the world in Matthew chapter 5. So especially in view of the context here in which light and treasure both refer to the same idea, could this be another instance where Paul uses two ideas and puts them kind of in a creative ambiguity. He wants us to see both things, not one thing in absence of the other. Treasure is infinitely priceless, and light brings us revelation, the revelation of God, and both these facts are true. We have this great treasure in our hearts, the treasure of the gospel, you see, but this treasure is also light, which is to shine out through us. We're not the originators of either. We're just the communicators. Both of these ideas would show that their surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So, I guess one of the assignments would be for hearing the truth of God's word today is to start preaching to yourself that you have the light of Christ in you and that his presence is an incredible treasure as he indwells us in the person of his spirit. Talk about lack of an identity crisis. This is something every Christian should know and understand. Now with this in mind, Paul then in the next two verses more or less gives us a message that can actually be translated. The last part of these four contrasts we see here is knocked down but not knocked out. And Paul uses his own experience to teach that we are afflicted in every way but not what? crushed. We are perplexed, but what? Not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. And we are struck down, but not destroyed. And again, this is Paul's 
personal experience that he is showing us, telling us, opening up about, about his life and his calling so that we could understand and learn this too. Don't miss the fact that these jars of clay, both pots and lamps, are easily broken. We know that. Just look at us. Do you recall Paul's personal account of experiencing these kind of problems back in chapter 1, verse 8? For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And Paul also in that text wrote what God's purpose was in allowing all that. In verse 9, the next verse in chapter 1, he says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So now Paul helps the Corinthians see the same purpose. Folks, the question for us is, are we going to let God show us the same purpose this morning? And will we agree with it? This is the kind of thing that God knows we need to hear over and over and over again until we finally start not only to get it, but to agree with it. Right now, do all of us understand the ways of God? Are there things going on that you could describe as afflicting you in every way? Perplexing you? Persecuting you? Striking you down? And the really important questions are, do you feel crushed? Driven to despair? Forsaken? Destroyed? Now, feeling these ways should be a sign for each of us to turn our thinking to the Lord so we won't stay in that state. We all will feel those things. How can you not? But to stay in that state is dangerous. It not only affects you, it affects everyone around you. So, if afflicted in every way, are you still here and intact and not totally crushed? I'm asking the question. Yes, I, I, I see you here. I see myself here. We are here. So do we realize that we still contain the treasure of Christ in our hearts? Therefore, we can still transmit and reflect the light that comes from him. And what did Paul say was the purpose? 
So you could show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. His grace is sufficient for anything that he allows or brings. Next, we see if perplexed, usually because we don't understand his ways. And so we'll not agree with him about the way he's working. What he desires doesn't match up to what we want and desire. Or what must happen to not be driven to despair. Your faith should be anchored to who he is. Because of what he did to save you. And therefore you should know. That there is a reason that's known to him. What's our problem? We want in on all the reasons. And he is not obliged to tell us all the reasons. He knows when it's right. The question is, are we willing to wait for the disclosure of that reason till sometime later on? That's the question. This kind of faith literally fills the Psalms. So if you have especially big problems in this area, dive into the book of Psalms. And many times we see multitudes of questions to God in those chapters. Honest questions. The same questions we ask when we are perplexed. And many times, in one of those psalms, they're followed by affirmations of faith and praises in the same psalm. The people in psalms trusted God without the full revelation in Christ. So how much more should we be able to trust God? Seeing that he has finished that incredible and most important part of his plan of redemption. And what did Paul say was the purpose? So you could show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. His grace is sufficient for anything he allows or brings. Yeah, we're going to hear these four times today. Next, and if persecuted, because your faith does challenge the unbeliever and may arouse violent opposition. Do you feel forsaken? Do you feel alone in that? We don't know much about this, really, even though we still know these feelings. But surely Paul does, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the following. To the present hour, we, him and his helpers, hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still like the scum of the world, are the refuse of all things. 
Do I really need to ask this question? Well, I think so. If God calls some of us to be persecuted for Christ's sake, will it be worth it? Christians down through the ages have found great comfort in knowing, that's capital K-N-O-W-I-N-G, in knowing that standing for Christ gives them a rather unique connection to their Savior that almost cannot be put into words. But we have some books by Christians who did put it into words. And some of them are right here in the New Testament, as we've seen with Paul. But what about John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress? And what about John Fox's, Fox's Book of Martyrs? It might be a good time to revisit these if you've read them before. And what you hear and see there are the hearts of people who did have to face persecution and how they handled it and how in grace they lived it thankfully in spite of it. You know, I remember hearing in college um, about the Apostle Paul that really the non-Christians, the people that were violent, some Romans, but not all the Romans, all over the place, sometimes from his own people, they didn't know what to do with Paul. If they let him alone to preach something they hated, they knew that he would and bring glory to the God that he was talking about. If they warned him to stop, he wouldn't. When they threatened to put him in jail, he went gladly and then shared Christ and many times, many in the jail, the jailers, the guards, in his case, the Praetorian Guard in Rome that were the, the best fighters and soldiers who protected the highest ranking politicians of the Roman Empire became Christians. So what do you do with a guy like this? Do you kill him? That's the only option left. Well, if he's executed, then he's a martyr, and more people find about him and the God that he was proclaiming than ever before. I hope that if it ever gets to this, other people will look at us or whoever is in this situation and say, what do we do with him? What do we do with her? They're living for something beyond what we have here on this earth. And man, do they believe it. So what did Paul say was the purpose here? So you could show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. His grace is sufficient for anything that he allows or brings. One more. To be struck down but not destroyed can be literally translated as struck down but not knocked out. Paul and his fellow missionaries endured this kind of treatment for many, and it did not cause them to give up. Why? Because it caused them to look for God's grace to persist. This is striking. 
we may not ever be called to experience this seriously dangerous, dangerous treatment. But we should learn now to operate in the tough situations each of us do face in the way the New Testament teaches us to. The foundational questions are the same for each case. And what did Paul say was the purpose? So you could show that the surpassing power belongs to whom? To God and not to you. His grace is sufficient for anything that he allows or brings into your life. Then we get to verses 10 through 12, and it's about carrying around the death of Jesus so that the Corinthians may know the life of Christ. Now, he says this, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. Why? Two times in these verses we see the phrase, so that. This explains why so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. See what he's saying? These three verses are much simpler to understand than they first appear to be. Verse 10 is really a summary of the four pairs of contrast that we just looked at. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Hearing those four contrasts and then looking at verse 10's summary helps us see Paul's emphasis. We are always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So on the one hand, always carrying around in the body the death or dying of Jesus sums up Paul's own experiences of being afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down during the course of his service for Christ. And on the other hand, saying that the life of Jesus expresses how so far, so far, did you catch that? So far, the Lord had saved Paul from being crushed, driven to despair, forsaken, and destroyed. He knows that. John was martyred. Many of these guys died way before Paul did. He faced death so much during everyday course of his life that he knew I should have been gone. But God kept me here, and he knows the reason why. To manifest the life of Christ as he proclaims it. And he knew God wasn't finished with him yet. Now, do we have that attitude? Now, you're looking at somebody who came this close to death. I didn't have much time to think about it. But afterwards, everybody was asking, well, how are you looking at your life now? And all I could say at first was, 
well, God must have some more to do because I'm still a mess. That's the personal part. The other part was getting to see this. You see what Paul's saying? That's not the question for him, whether he's here today or gone tomorrow. He's got that covered already in his head and in his heart. Paul recognizes that being saved from those results when he constantly faced death actually prefigured the believer's final deliverance from mortality at the resurrection. So he looked at his life as, hey, look, God will raise our bodies at some point, even when we each do die, and then we go on in a more glorious way than ever. So he saw now as preparation for then. One way to describe all this is to say, life in the midst of death or comfort in the midst of suffering. That's the mindset that we must have. And I don't know about you, but it seems like the more that you get to live in this life, the more God graciously and patiently most of the time is going, have, do you get this yet? Do, do you understand this yet? And then in verse 11, Paul comes at this same idea again. He says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. flesh. Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it, to the previous sense? The appearance of the phrase, so that in both these verses, stresses the fact that in the Apostle Paul's life, the death and life of Jesus were simultaneously evident. The death and life of Jesus should be simultaneously evident as we reflect him. In verse 10, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies which is almost exactly the same as verse 11, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul was ready for either death in this life soon or continued life for however long. He did not demand an answer there. The point is that this his experience of God's grace in whatever circumstance God had him in was up to the Lord and not to him. And he was okay with either. Whew. He was okay with either. And notice he says at the beginning of verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, which also includes who? We who live. He's talking to the Corinthians, and we're reading this. He's talking to us. This understanding and acceptance of this life not lasting forever 
is not a guarantee of smooth, smooth sailing. And it would sure save most Americans a ton of your income spent trying to stay young forever. Just think about that. One of the biggest industries of the whole Western world is spending a huge percentage of our income not just being good stewards of our bodies, that's important, but huge amounts of income trying to find the modern-day fountain of youth, which people have been trying to do since the beginning. Christians must come to grips with both the reality of this truth and its opportunity to encourage others in what really matters, which is getting to know and serve the Lord. We see that in Paul. That's why this is so powerful. He's not just reciting doctrine. He's putting doctrine into practice and asking them to go, isn't this the way I've ministered to you? And they had no honest, truthful answer except, you're right, Paul. You're willing to give your life in the proclamation of the gospel so that we could know him. Thank you. This is the work of the Lord. We need to learn to think like this, guys. We have to. And if we're already on this road, we need to encourage others to join us. Because this is not a do this and we'll be victorious. Put on the armor of God. The armor of God is defensive except for one thing. We need to deal with it. And verse 12 expresses this very sentiment that what really matters is getting to know and serve the Lord. So that death is at work in us, but life in you. And what is that? It's our purpose for life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I can't think of well, probably, and we know it's true, your word is full, literally full of passages that speak to the very issues that you know we need to think about and be prepared for in the day in which we live. This is nothing new to you. Nothing has taken you by surprise. Nothing ever. And you have placed us here in this wonderful special, precious body of believers to get to know you better and to individually and corporate, corporately live in such a way that your light shines out from us to a world that desperately needs you, that needs the answers that matter, the eternal answers. There's only one way to know the peace that we need to have with God Almighty. And that is to know the Savior who God sent to pay the price of death for us and take the condemnation upon himself so that we could stand in your presence pleading and crying out the name of Christ Jesus as who saved us, whose sacrifice was acceptable for us, 
Lord, we try to make this so intricate, so unbelievably complicated. And in so many ways, Lord, this is so simple. Your truth, this truth, gets to the very heart of the matter. Lord, thank you for calling us to this time in this place. Thank you that your purposes for us are eternal, that we get to see your hand every day, that we get to see your work. We should not be surprised that sin is so painful and that things go so awry when you are not the Lord that's being worshipped. So God, we want to grow in this area. And we thank you that you've given us people and a place to do that. And we pray that your word would be proclaimed, not just in teaching and from the pulpit and Bible studies, but that proclamation would come from our hearts as we apply the truth that we say we believe. Lord, help us. Thank you that you're patient with us and that we can rest assured you are on your throne. And as we bow before you, thank you for the peace that we have knowing that you've called us for this reason. Oh Lord, we can enjoy you. Whether we have blessings to rejoice about or whether we're weeping with others, and we thank you for that grace that only comes in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and realize that you will be sitting down again right after this <laughs> for just a few minutes. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Would everyone